Heavenly Father, you've declared in Scripture that your word doesn't return to your void. And our prayer today is, Lord, that you will give authenticity to your word and grant that it doesn't return to you from our lives void. Lord God, again in Scripture, it said Jesus went about and when his disciples preached, he confirmed the word with signs that follow. We just want to open our hearts to you to be yourself today. So that your word, you can make its mark and that you can confirm it in your ways. It's our prayer, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now there is a scripture, just one verse I'm going to read to you to begin with. There's a scripture in Exodus 15 and verse 11, which says this. Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Well, who is like our God? When Moses lifted up that prayer of praise and wonder, they'd come out of Egypt, they'd seen many gods and many idols, but they hadn't seen any God who did what their God did, who alone is God. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I've been preaching for 40 years. Yes, three. It shows. I, I did stop once or twice during those 40 years. But after you have preached and then preached and then preached, it is very easy to stand up in the front and talk about God as though he's a subject you have to teach in the polytechnic or the university. He's just a subject. We talk about God and we talk about it in terms of our creedal understanding. Now, I suspect, and I can't speak for you, obviously, but I suspect that in our daily lives, many of us think of God like that. That we register that we are believers and there is God. But is he a God who works wonders. Is that our appreciation of him when I stand up and preach or when you get up in the morning that our God is such an awesome God there's no God that can be devised who is like him. Who is like him majestic in holiness and awesome in his glorious deeds, doing wonders. So this morning, for my sake and hopefully for yours, I want to speak about the wonderfulness of the works of God. But I'm going to do it using some biblical events which you and I are so familiar with 
that it's quite possible that when we talk about them, we just kind of go, hmm, familiar, heard it before. And I tell you why, because it's about the Christmas events. Now, I know that you do Christmas well. You do it four weeks of the year running up to Christmas and you have carols again and again and you have some very inspired meetings. But it's the same old, same old, isn't it, this year as last year and it's the same story and it's the same thing and it's all very wonderful but when you've been doing it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, does it just become part of the Christmas season? So let's think again about the wonders of God. I'm going to use Matthew. I shall probably stop by the time we get to the wise men. But I'm going to start with a genealogy. I'm not going to read it all, don't worry. But Matthew has used a genealogy at the beginning of his gospel. It's his intention to show that Jesus, the child born to Mary and Joseph, that Jesus is the legal inheritor of the promises made first to Abraham and then to David. Now the promises to Abraham in the end funnel down and include you and me. Because within the promises God made to Abraham, all the nations of the earth would bless themselves because of him. And so that affects you and me, and Asians, and Africans if we happen, and Poles and other Europeans. This affects all of us, and the Irish even. Yes. <laughs> you see. So he gives this genealogy showing that from there is clear and obvious descent from Abraham all the way down to David. And then David inherits a new promise plus those that were made to Abraham. And he had many sons, did David, many sons, but to only one of them was the promise passed down, and that was to Solomon. And so then Matthew shows that from Abraham down to the exile, and then the exile down to Mary and Joseph, there is direct line. Jesus is the legal executive of the promises of God made to Abraham and to David. Now doesn't that suggest awesome purpose over generations? God working 
as one of the hymns says, God is working his purpose out as age succeeds to age. Now think about it for a moment. Instead of just reading a list of boring names and think, isn't that awesome of God? That from a thousand years before David, and then a thousand years from David, he is working out a purpose to bring about the executor, to bring into this world the executor of those promises to be the one who blesses you through faith so that through faith in him you might be entitled to be children of God. Now that's just the genealogy. Matthew says, Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. We read it so glibly. So let's just stop and think for a moment. A young woman, open to God, receives an extraordinary visitation of the Holy Spirit. And within her womb, she now has fetus without human father. This is a new act of creation. Well, he only does wonders. But that is awesome. Matthew tells us that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy made by Isaiah. Well, again, think about this. Isaiah, six, seven hundred years before Jesus, sits down, he is praying... And he is impressed by God to write these ridiculous words. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now there may be an explanation for this, in that he used a word in Hebrew which can mean maiden or virgin. And that later on, when some holy men translated the Hebrew scriptures into what we call a Septuagint, the Greek scriptures, they used a word which could mean virgin or maiden. I don't care to tell the truth. God is even Lord over language changes and differences. And he inspired Isaiah to write the ridiculous, which then became understood by the Jewish teachers to be a messianic prophecy, which was fulfilled 
through Mary when she conceived fetus without human father. Now God is awesome, isn't he? You see, unfortunately, we live within the vibes of a world and we've been part of it and may still be a part of it in some ways that won't believe a thing unless they can see it, feel it, touch it, demonstrate it by means of test tubes or whatever. But you and I believe that in the beginning God before anything material God and that in the beginning as it says in Hebrews chapter 11 by faith we understand that God made all things out of stuff which doesn't exist but we also believe as the scripture testifies in little bursts all the way through that God is present everywhere. So one of the Psalms says, where shall I go from your presence? Or whither fly from your spirit? And Paul, approvingly quoting a pagan poet says, in him we live and move and have our being. Now then, when the people of our generation judge what is possible in the world or not, they don't have a God to include in their worldview. But you and I have God who is in our worldview and is present and whom we cannot escape and who is the maker and genius behind all things, the creator of all the, 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 the physical and, and chemical laws of the universe, and he, because he is God, is able to work in his ways in the things that he has made. And he is spirit. He is what we would call supernatural. It is not a shock to us, or shouldn't be, that things seen as supernatural happen at the will and command and activity of God who is wherever you and I are. It is, it is the law of nature which materialists leave out that God is with us, he is here, in him we live and move and have our being and he only works wonders. Now when Joseph learned that Mary was pregnant, he was worried. He thought that she'd gone off and played on the side with somebody. And if any of us had been Joseph, we'd have thought the same. So he maybe was furious but also he was a righteous man, so he decided he'd divorce her quietly. He could have had her stoned, of course, but he decided to divorce her 
until he went to bed one night. Now again, just consider this. We know the story. We've read it so many times. But Joseph has gone to bed. He's asleep. He's dreaming. If you tiptoe past his room and peep inside the door, there he is, unconscious to the world. So tell me, if you please, how is it that God gets an angel to come from heaven and stand inside his unconscious world, but consciously to him in a dream? How does an angel get into his dream and then prophesy to him how Mary became pregnant? Unbelievable, unless an angel tells you in a dream, I guess. What the sex of the child was going to be long before they thought of scans. What to call the child and what kind of ministry he is going to have in life. In such a real way, you can't see it happening. He's not moving. He's unconscious to the world. But he wakes up in the morning and he says, Mary, let's get married. I understand. Now, all I'm saying is, how does God do How does he do that? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, he only works wonders. When the prophecy is fulfilled and the child is born, here's something we still find it difficult to get our heads round God with us word made flesh all the fullness of God dwelling bodily in Jesus And he's the executor of the promises by which you and I, in believing, become children of God. Now we're told some wise men came. Tradition says three because there were three lots of gifts. I don't know. Nor do I know where they came from. Depends who you read, really. Some people will suggest they came from Saudi Arabia area. Some people will suggest they came from Babylon area. I don't know. I don't frankly care. Because either way, they together chose to do a 300 mile at least trip each way on this apparent whim to find a new king 
who possibly wasn't even conceived at the time they began their journey. Now, were they astronomers or were they astrologers? Again, it depends who you read. I don't care. Jesus came to be saviour of both astronomer and astrologer. But how did they get it into their heads to leave home and do this perilous journey into this unknown or into a country they weren't familiar with? It may be that there were rumours going around, you know. Over the centuries there have been many times when, when public or Christian expectation of the return of Jesus has risen to fever pitch and da-da, he never came yet. I have no doubt there were similar risings of fever pitch amongst the Jews during their history. Oh, look at the... It must be soon that our Messiah is coming. Maybe something like that was going on. Maybe if they were in Babylon, somebody from the dispersion had been talking about Balaam's prophecy about a star shall rise and, and a, a king shall come from it. Who knows? I don't know. We do know that they used their art, their science, and looked up into heaven and they saw a remarkable star. Was it a conjunction? Was it a new star? Don't ask me. But they looked up into the heaven and saw it and there was this kind of superstition that was prevalent around the nations at that time, the Middle East at least, that when such an appearance occurred in the sky, a great king was going to be born. Now somehow or another, these wise men, using perhaps superstition, perhaps a bit of public expectation, perhaps using a bit of prophecy, perhaps just looking at the heavens, these men decided this must be the king of the Jews is going to be born. And on the strength of that, they made their 300-mile journey each way. Now, to begin with, I just want to ask the question, how did God so sink that conviction into their hearts that they put their lives and reputations on the line to make that journey specifically to see the king born to the Jews. How did God focus that conviction in them such a strong conviction shared between them, nurtured on their journey. I think God is wonderful in the way he does his things. And I can't explain him. I do believe that these wise men did what probably we would have done if we'd been in their position, if we'd had the guts to stand up and do that journey on the strength of these 
feelings, conviction. They went to the palace. Because where on earth is a king going to be born other than in the royal palace? So they've made their way to Jerusalem and they've used their common sense, good for them, and they've gone and presented themselves to King Herod and asked him where the man born to be king of the Jews is. And Herod is appalled. He's a nasty man anyway. And the last thing he wants is a rival to his throne. So how do we get rid of this rival if there is one? I know, where's the Messiah going to be born? I'll call for the priests. They'll know. And so he calls for the priests who put their heads together and they come up with Micah's prophecy. Bethlehem, you are not least amongst the princes, for from you, and so they direct Herod to Bethlehem for the birth of their Messiah. Now, Micah lived 700 years before Jesus. <laughs> and um, during the course of his prophesying, his writing down, he did at one point say, I am filled with the Spirit of God. So Micah, filled with the Spirit of God, wrote down this prophecy which we find in Micah chapter 5 about Bethlehem being the place. Now you might say, and so I might say, that it's not unreasonable for him to write that down. After all, the Messiah was to be a descendant of David and David came from Bethlehem. What could be more natural in a moment of inspiration than to write down out of Bethlehem will come the Messiah. Now 700 years is a long time. 700 years ago in our, from our lifetime, King John was about to sign the Magna Carta and Genghis Khan was running riot across Asia. 700 years is a long time. But in the understanding of the Jewish spiritual mind, this prophecy became a messianic promise which remained as such over all those 700 years until the wise man reached Herod and the priests passed it on to Herod and for the wise men it became travel direction for the end of their journey. Now I'd say God is wonderful, wouldn't you? Awesome and he only works wonders and they seem so Christmassy. But God was working wonders. And now this is the bit I don't understand. When they left Herod, the star reappeared in the heavens above them. Don't ask me. I haven't the faintest idea. Was it this conjunction 
which was moving in the sky. Was it a different star? I don't know, but they saw it. And this, to me, is almost the most unbelievable bit about the star. It went on before them. <laughs> and I imagine them looking, there's a star again. Walking on. It seems to be moving with us. Hang on a minute. It stopped. Over this house. Let's knock on the door, shall we? And there, in this very city, this very street, this very house, is this very woman who gave birth to this very child. There may have been, they might have asked questions along the way. I don't know. Life can be very ordinary sometimes, and God uses it. But I think of this and say, Lord, you put this conviction into the heart of these men 300 odd miles away. They've travelled all this way and you have brought them to the very house where Jesus, the Word made flesh, called Emmanuel, is in his mother's arms. My only point today is this. Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds? Who is like you, Lord, doing wonders? And yet, in him, we are even now living and moving and having our being. And we cannot escape from his spirit because he is with us, a most awesome, 